0: Today's episode of Podcast for America is sponsored by the American Heart Association, which is urging lawmakers to save physical education. The average school gets just $764 every year for phys ed. Go to heart.org slash let them play to learn more and take action. Podcast for America is also sponsored by MileIQ. If you're one of the 60 million Americans who drive for work, then you know that your miles are dollars. Every mile you don't log is money that you're losing. Mile IQ is the only mileage tracker app that detects, logs, and calculates your miles for you, ensuring that every mile is accounted for and no dollar is lost. Try Mile IQ for free today by texting America to three one nine nine six. That's America texted to three one nine nine six.
1: Hi, I'm Julie Lifcott
2: Hames, the host of Getting In. I'm the former dean of freshmen at Stanford and the author of How to Raise an Adult. Getting In is a new podcast from Panoply, following a group of high school seniors through the college admission process. And right now is crunch time,
1: especially for students applying early decision.
2: You know, when you put it all together, it's a lot. I don't really sleep. I drink a lot of black coffee, but, you know, I'm I'm stressed, but I'm I could be worse. I could be bored. That's what you'll hear on the new episode of Getting In from Panoply. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast
1: app. The following podcast contains explicit language.
2: Hello from the Slate Studios in New York City. This is Podcast for America, a show from Panoply about the fear, loathing, and self-delusion that is an American presidential campaign cycle. I'm Alex Wagner of MSNBC, and with me from our fair studios in Washington, D.C., is Mark Leibovich of the New York Times Magazine, and by phone, dialing in from across the country, the great Annie Lowry, contributing editor with New York Magazine. Gentlemen, lady, wait, why am I a
1: plural gentleman, and why is she a single gentleman? Gentleman, I
2: said, gentleman. Oh,
1: because I'm a very gentleman. You're
2: enough man to be two, Mark. How about that?
1: That sounds good to me.
2: Okay. I'm ready. You may have noticed, loyal listeners, that this week we are recording slightly later in the week. We want to offer you, of course, the best and the sharpest reflections as we do every week. Therefore, we had to wait until this week's Republican debate came to a close, which it did, thankfully. First up, we'll talk Jeb versus Rubio, a.k.a. Luke Skywalker versus Anakin Skywalker. Right? Is that right? Is that a correct Star Wars reference? I think. The big Ewok versus the little Ewok. There you go. Boom. Next, we'll do some thoughtful self-reflection around the idea of a liberal media bias. I should say that, a liberal media bias. I'm going to uh-huh. take that seriously in the intro, which our Republican candidates so helpfully pointed out approximately 11 times in the debate this week. And then we will close out with a little grab bag of highlights from Monsieur Trump. Carson, Christy, and Madame Fiorina, just to name a few of the approximately 576,000 candidates on stage. And then if we have time, which is always a question, we might end this beautiful thing with a segment we like to call, If I Were In Charge. Okay, so let's get right to it. It has been a juicy week. That is sounds suggestive, but <laughs> I'm going to start that over. <laughs> no, it's over. been a
1: juicy week. Stick with, no, 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 it don't, no, don't tape over. It's been a juicy week. Stand by your week. It's been a
2: juicy week. <laughs> yeah juicy week um marco rubio versus jeb bush when that moment was happening you guys i yelped out loud i yelped out loud and i said i can't believe it's finally happening The showdown we've been waiting for the the werther's originals grandson taking on grandpa on the front porch with all the neighbors to see i was uncomfortable in that marco rubio jeb bush moment what did you guys think
3: i had my popcorn already i'm completely with alex this has been a long time coming I think it's a little bit weird that some of the substance of this is about Marco Rubio missing votes, which I'm not sure that so many people care about.
1: People running for president in the Senate always miss votes. It's nothing new. I mean, there are some yeah. hellacious voting records for pretty much everyone in the Senate who's run for president. However, I do think, as Donald Trump pointed out, there is a certain resonance to someone who doesn't give a damn and doesn't show up for work. I mean, And why don't you just quit? I mean, do you really well, want to okay, both Well, okay, just ways? to be
2: fair— Just to be fair, from 2007 to 2008, uh, a a then-senator named Barack Obama missed 64.3% of the votes. Marco Rubio this year has missed 34% of the votes. I mean, Lindsey Graham is close behind him at 27.1%, and I don't think anybody would accuse Lindsey Graham of not liking his stage up.
1: He is not the first offender. He won't be the last offender. I just think that it's, it's one of the rare issues that even though it's very common and even though it's certainly precedented... Um, average people who actually do have to go to their jobs and can't you know miss large chunks of, of time for some other ambitious pursuit is you know I just think it's a potentially resonant issue.
2: I thought it seemed so desperate. I, I could not believe Jeb Bush was going to go after Marco Rubio. On his, you know, his attendance record. I mean, I think if Marco Rubio has a weak spot, it is that he has turned his back on immigration reform and Jeb Bush could have come at him on the issue of, of character, of principle, on whether he believes in the things that he says he'll fight for. And he came at him on whether or not he went to class every day.
3: Yeah, so for me, it felt a little bit like you know, when you like have a really good comeback and you don't think of it until like after you've left the restaurant. <laughs> yes, or like, the totally or like, Totally right. Like it took several debates and like weeks and weeks of these two kind of sniping at each other before he kind of came up with this. It. it was a pretty good comeback, but I don't know. I'm with you that it felt like a little bit lame to me, and I'm just not sure how it's like relevant. And it feels to me like, you know, there's been all this talk in Washington. I feel like it's become kind of conventional wisdom, despite the fact that it's not really supported strongly by poll numbers, that Rubio is the guy that's going to come out on top after, you know, months and months of wrangling, after Trump, presumably at some point, falls apart, after Carson falls apart. And, you know, this was a night that I felt like it finally gave actual evidence a little bit to that conventional wisdom that has been around without too much support for a long time.
1: Yeah, I would say this. I, I actually don't think Jeb Bush had such a disastrous – as disastrous a performance as a lot of people seem to think. Nor do I think that Marco Rubio had as big of a breakthrough performance as everyone thought.
2: Mm-hmm. Why, why didn't you think Jeb was uh, – is well, now the walking I, dead, which is what folks well, are saying? Well, first
1: of all, I resent the media. This is one reason I do resent the media. I oh, mean, the whole, like,
2: you, Mark? The
3: media. Well, I do.
1: No, I just think that, like, all right, it's over. This was the night. This will be the night everyone – around. I mean, shut up, everyone. No one knows – I mean, first of all, there's another debate in ten days. If he has a comeback night, I just—I'm sick of like but Mark, everyone. Mark, Mark, yeah. Mark.
2: This is not this. Jeb Bush has been on a downward trajectory almost since he started this race. And if anything, he's gotten worse in debates and he's gotten more desperate. I mean, this is someone who still can't answer the basic questions about his candidacy, how his presidency would be different than that of his brother. He's seemed irascible and grumpy lately. He seemed he's talked openly about his impatience. And then he's like, I mean, punching down, punching up. What do you even call what he did last night to Rubio.
1: I mean, I guess as someone who has been on a downward trajectory and is grouchy and irascible and has been... That's That's me, too, by the the way. way, I'm inclined to identify with him to some (laughs) degree. Um, You know, I think you kind of, in a way, you sort of you answered your own question before when you said he's desperate and he is uh, what was the second word irascible I, you know, grumpy he's, no yeah i mean i think he's at his absolute worst when he's desperate which is weird because as a bush he's almost at his best when he's entitled and relaxed <laughs> and expects to get yeah. a certain way which is a weird dynamic for someone so like so true um, though it's so but, true yeah, I mean, you know, I have just not gotten the allergy to Jeb Bush that so many people have over this race. And, again, I still would caution everyone to say, you know, can we, can we just, like, not declare the race over yet? Because, first of all, we have a lot more podcasts to fill. Yeah,
3: we do have <laughs> Don't a lot we? more podcasts. So I think that this debate continued to have this kind of, like, fever dream quality that some of the other Republican debates have. There's just too many people on this stage, and they're kind of, like, they're like hyper, right? Like, they all seem, like, slightly jacked up. At but this time, they weren't, like like sweating as badly as they had been. But it did like the irascible quality and kind of like the evident disappointment that they have with each other. I thought was like a fairly new tonal addition to these never ending debates.
2: The phrase French work week is literally maybe one of my favorite. I mean, that was a planned line. Let us hear a little clip from The Great Minds at CNBC.
1: Marco, when you signed up for this, this was a six-year term, and you should be showing up to work. I mean, literally, the Senate, what is it, like a French work week? You get like three days where you have to show up?
2: That really sounded like it came from Mike Murphy, who's one of the chief Bush strategists. Mm -hmm. And as delivered by Mike Murphy, it would have been awesome. From the mouth of Jeb Bush, it didn't work so well. And if we're talking about messaging, I think if you shut your eyes... Well, actually, you'd have to shut more than your eyes and your ears. If you read a transcript of what Marco Rubio was saying about his American story, this could have been the same thing that Barack Obama was saying in 2007. And I found that actually incredibly remarkable because that brand is so totally owned by Obama and the Obama coalition. And that's something that the right has, has vilified, this idea of sort of exhilarated hope and a belief in the unseen and the, 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 the story of America as this, as, this, as this place where a young man from nothing can come and rise to the top. I mean, not the bootstrap part of it, but that, that sort of particular narrative right. is something that's been like dragged through the mud on the right. And here was Rubio like, just w- marching under that banner proudly.
1: Right. Well, I mean, it, it. Look, it works. I mean, you have you have quite a few commonalities. You have the son of immigrants. You have someone who's in his early forties. You have someone who is brand new to the Senate, clearly has no interest in his job, isn't showing up for work a lot. I mean, these, and, and, you know, and it is audacious in that there are far more people with more, you know, on the stage and 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 in the party who would say that it's their turn. So, I mean, it might be the the path that has been blazed by Barack Obama, but it doesn't mean it can't you know work in any number of different profiles.
2: I just wonder. I mean, the other part of it is that Barack Obama had assembled a a sort of ground game and had a a, a national strategy that yeah. was formidable and unprecedented, and he had enthusiasm that I don't see. I mean, it'll be interesting to see if Rubio can adopt the narrative and and get to the same place as Obama which is right. of course the White House without I mean I would
1: say well I would just say though that, that there are I mean grassroots excitement in the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are very different yes, things, especially yeah. when separated by seven years. And I, you know, I think grassroots, you know, fervor in Obama's case meant actual grassroots organization mm-hmm. and email and texting and you know all things that were you know, much more new. there. house parties, door to door, you know, that kind of thing. And I don't think I mean there, I don't see a single Republican candidate who's prizing that at all.
3: So I feel like there's another there's another element that has gone unsaid in all of this. But I mean, so Trump actually had a fair amount of time, uh, speaking time during this debate, but he was, he was quite subdued, I thought, like relative to his cast performances. And he's still getting on people's cases. But it's remarkable to me how much the conversation has shifted away from him. And I think it'll be very interesting to see if that's actually borne out in voter sentiment, um, in numbers. Obviously, he's losing some ground to Carson, which is interesting. You know, six months from now, I wonder if we're not going to look back at this debate as kind of a turning point.
1: Well, I mean, there is a sort of normalcy of Trump sort of fading into the crowd that we're sort of seeing that, that's become, if not a trend, maybe a phase. I mean, Trump's act is not new anymore. And what's interesting now is as the candidates become more you know, really desperate for any kind of attention whatsoever. They've sort of taken on the – person percent- who, who's like the uh, welcome back Cotter character who used to raise his hand and say – We're oh, too oh, young oh. for that. It was – no, Horseshack, right? Oh, my God. I'm I so old. We have old. no idea. Horseshack. Yeah. He you're died last to, year, by the way. You have put that in saved by
2: the bell terms.
3: Yeah,
1: oh, exactly. My God. Well, you know, it's interesting Sorry. because Paul Ryan, I believe, knew a Horseshack – Reference, and this is one thing I will always remember about him. So that I don't know what that says either. More <laughs> stories
2: from the okay, mind of Mark I, I, God,
1: that's that's such a scary thought. But there are people like desperate for attention, and they're they're much less shy about yelling at each other, yelling over each other, yelling at moderators, and you know the shamelessness that Donald Trump sort of took to his early lead has been kind of shared a little bit. So I think it's harder for him to connect and harder for him to break through compared to where it was before.
2: One of the most memorable things that Trump did during the debate, I thought, was in the end during closing statements when he effectively used his demand that CNBC make the debate only two hours (laughs) long as evidence of his executive qualification. Um, yeah. it's and, amazing. In, and indeed, this is it a good awesome. segue to the next topic of discussion, which is the liberal media. But before we get there, listeners, what do you think of skipping out on votes? Does it matter? Tweet us with your thoughts at Pod for America. <laughs> so, OK, this is perhaps I think this was one of the more contentious takeaways from the event this week. The concept of liberal media bias and whether or not it exists, because certain people will say absolutely and others will say you are kidding yourselves. There was open hostility towards the moderators and Republican candidates numerous times brought up the notion that this was sort of a liberal media plot to discredit or somehow smear the candidates on stage. Here are a few highlights, courtesy of CNBC.
0: You know, let me say something at the outset. The questions that have been asked so far in this debate illustrate why the american people don't trust the media
1: you know the democrats have the ultimate super packet called the mainstream media this is another example of the double standard that exists in this country between the mainstream mainstream media is going around saying it was the greatest week in hillary clinton's campaign it was the week she got exposed as a liar
2: okay so with me here we have someone from msnbc someone from new york magazine and someone from the new york times magazine which i think constitute three of the pillars of the liberal media guys what Mark? <laughs> I'll start with you because the great lady is is probably the poster child for the liberal media. Mm. The concept of the liberal media. Yeah. Did you think that an effective case was made for media bias law at, uh, this week?
1: Not particularly. I mean, I think. Look, I think CNBC had, and and I hate to speak at all uncharitably about your your corporate sister over <laughs> at CNBC, Alex.
2: I wish I had actually... a corporate sister that like worked in insurance. <laughs> then I would really understand that bond and I internalize it. I have a hot
1: corporate sister. Yeah, all, yeah, all my colleagues are like, whatever. That's, there's something about the hot sister. Here. Her name um, is
2: Olivia. Anyway, Ol- go ahead.
1: Exactly. No, I thought that they had their own problems. I thought that they kind of lost control. I thought that some of the questions were dopey. I, I didn't think they were biased per se, though. I mean, look, everyone knows that it's always a pretty safe move for a Republican candidate to bitch and moan about liberal media bias. But I also think that you know now there's talk that, oh, we're going to just sort of take control of this and have our own network people and our own friendly people. And like, all right, fine, we'll just go back to Fox and then you can go back to whining about Megyn Kelly. And the one thing that's frustrating to me is you know Ronald Reagan, the whole prototype of like the speak softly, carry a big stick Republicanism Was certainly to denigrate the liberal media and sort of the liberal cultural institutions, but not to whine so damn much. And when did it become so embedded in the DNA of the Republican Party to have candidates who do so much whining about the media? I mean, first of all, they have their own the number one rated cable station. They have all of talk radio. They have all these very powerful online entities. You know, it's a pretty tired well, thing. It's effective, that but it's tired.
2: They don't ha- like the Democrats don't have the New York Times. I mean, the New York Times broke Hillary Clinton's email server scandal, which has been the right. most the, the biggest challenge she's had to overcome this. You can never imagine Fox News doing that for anyone on the right. I mean, I just don't think it's I think it's a false right. equivalence.
1: Totally. And actually, before I answer that, I have to check with the Clinton campaign to see if I'm allowed to speak at all in Yeah, we should to that. probably,
2: at the weekly meeting, you guys, we, we
1: need yes. to discuss
3: our messaging We need on to this. discuss
1: it. Annie, what did the Democratic Party say to you by way <laughs> of your editors at New York Magazine this morning about what you could and couldn't talk
3: about? Uh, uh, um, so I think there was like, actually one kind of policy-interesting media squabble, which had to do with this. Fight between Rubio and uh, my former colleague and the utterly delightful person who is John Harwood. So, you know, about the tax plans, right? This yes. Is, both of them are actually right. It was about whether this was a giveaway to the 1% or not. It's true that kind of like proportionately if you're low income, you get a bigger benefit from the plan. But like in dollar terms, all of the money is going to the people at the top. So it's actually a little bit difficult, of course. I thought that that was was actually kind of an interesting moment, and and you could have, like, a reasonable policy discussion and back into sort of interesting things from that. But instead, it's just become this completely partisan thing of people attacking John as, you know, like lying and being part of the liberal media. And it just turned into a massively stupid argument about what could actually be a legitimately interesting issue. And I was happy that Harwood pushed back so hard, because it's hard to do that. I don't know if he was sitting with the tax plan in front of him, you know, but, like, that I thought was the only interesting part. All of the rest of the stuff about the liberal media, as soon as these people start talking about it, it's like my brain just turns off.
2: Well, I, I think that something an important distinction needs to be made, which is between good moderating and good questions and liberal media bias. And I thought there were some really terrible questions last night. Much Agreed. respect to my hot yeah. corporate totally sister at CNBC. <laughs> I thought that John You're calling John. I, I hot. love John Hardward. He's a great dude, and I think he's a very mm-hmm. serious reporter. I thought he was not great last night. In so far as, right. I, you know, I thought it was inappropriate for him to interrupt Donald Trump in his closing remarks. I thought that asking him at the beginning whether he was a comic book villain was baiting, but I don't think that's evidence of n- liberal bias. I think that those were just shitty questions. I thought Becky Quick not knowing the source of multiple questions was embarrassing that gave journalism a bad name. Here were folks who seemed woefully underprepared for what they knew was going to be a contentious, debate and i thought and and now i will turn my my like indignation towards the candidate the idea that cnbc is a liberal media outlet is laughable i mean it's just preposterous and and if we have now reached the point where republican candidates will not be interviewed by anyone other than, I mean, I don't know, Brett Baier. I mean, right. Megyn Kelly is too far left for them. CNBC, mm-hmm. the home of Larry Kudlow, and Jim Cramer is to, is, is a liberal media outlet. I mean, this, this is ridiculous. It's it's absurd, and it bodes very, very badly for our democracy.
1: It, it does, but you know what it also does? It's also, it ultimately, it's stupid strategy. I mean, Newt, Newt Gingrich rode this a long way, but ultimately, he amounted to nothing. Sarah Palin has been bitching about this for years. She has not been, you know, I mean, obviously, after her eight very successful years as president, you know, we don't hear from her anymore. Ultimately, it doesn't work. I mean, not because the media is liberal or not liberal or powerful or not powerful, but this is about getting consensus at some point. And it's about having a serious discussion at some point. And especially if the media is going to moderate your debates, you have to at least take the moderator seriously.
2: The other problem was that they couldn't control the debate. I mean, these debates are, right. and everybody who to has control. to moderate them, they're very, very difficult. But it yeah. like there was more debate between the moderators and the, the candidates at one point than there was between the candidates and the candidates. and And that's problematic. Yeah.
3: You know, like there always are in these debates, People said things that were demonstrably wrong, things that we knew were wrong, that you could easily, easily point out were wrong. And they didn't get called on a lot of those. You know, there was some, like, pushback on some things. You know, like the discussion of job losses during Obama's first term. Like, these... These things are not hard like they're well known these numbers are accessible very quickly you're right
2: annie i mean the policy stuff is actually really important to correct because carly fiorina said multiple times this administration has effectively targeted women because they have suffered the most under the obama economy i mean that is something that can be pushed back upon vehemently with actual statistics or or donald trump being asked by john Harwood about his tax plan and how that would work just said larry kudlow likes it and that was the end of the discussion you know i mean well a- and and that and i feel like the the problem with these moments is that they add up and they're insidious i mean insofar as people who are listening to donald trump and carly fearing just be- sort of believe that word is gospel and they're and, right. and we have alternate universes with different sets of facts about concrete policy issues and that makes legislating Damn near impossible.
1: The, the thing about it, like a race like this, as it goes on, and I think Carly Fiorina and Donald Trump are like Exhibit One and One A here, is that you become very good at speaking with utter self-assurance about things that are abject nonsense and are just not true. And uh, Christie's pretty good at this too, actually. I mean, there's you do develop that skill after a while. And and look, self-assurance is a pretty compelling thing for people to see and internalize, especially if they don't really know what the facts are and are sort of looking to these things as entertainment instead of actually information, which tends to be what the dynamic in these things are.
2: Actual information.
1: Actual information. It's
2: endangered like the lions in sub-Saharan Africa. Are they endangered? That's another conversation for another time, but it's actually true. The lions are very endangered. Okay, we're going to take a quick break to hear about one of our fantastic sponsors.
0: We all remember taking physical education classes back when we were in school. Whether you loved playing with parachutes or preferred kickball, Phys Ed is a great way for kids to get regular physical activity, which is associated with a healthier, longer life and a lower risk of heart disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, and obesity. Physically fit children also perform better academically, exhibit better classroom behavior, and have higher attendance rates. That's why the American Heart Association is encouraging Congress to save physical education. As lawmakers work to finalize the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, Strong physical education policy should be a top priority. But some lawmakers want to do away with physical education altogether. Learn more and take action at heart.org slash let them play.
2: All right. We at Podcast for America are not done talking about this week's debate and specifically a few of the other potable quotables to quote Alex Trebek and a Jeopardy category. The potable quotables, including a one governor of New Jersey, Chris Christie, a neurosurgeon by the name of Dr. Ben Carson, a former HP executive named Carly Fiorina. And I mean, why not talk about Mike Huckabee, who has the fastest moving jaw and all of American politics, I think, personally. Um, Mark, of those people that I just mentioned, do you think any of them had— I mean, Chris Christie is someone people have been talking about. I know you're loath to say this is any kind of big week, but did you think mm. this could be an inflection point, if you will?
1: I actually think he did okay. I think it actually could be a good moment for him if Jeb continues to flounder and, and maybe Christie inherits some of that quasi-moderate establishment support that, or donor support that Jeb has been assumed to be the uh, beneficiary of. But otherwise, probably not.
2: Fantasy football, Annie, is that one of the main economic issues that we need to be addressing in America? And if so, did Chris Christie nail it?
3: <laughs> uh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Foremost, very Annie. first issue.
2: Were is... you, did your jaw drop when you heard them ask that question? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, like,
3: a little bit. It's just, I mean, but that's because I feel like you get used to just, like, there's a certain, like, there's a there's a debate dialectic, and when you're in it, it sort of has a brilliant internal coherence, and it is also completely and entirely irrelevant to the actual physical world around you. Sort of it's like...
2: Like, what Willy Wonka, like, Candyland, yeah, sort like of like, like you Wonderland. expect the trees to be made of lollipops or whatever? I
3: actually think that that was one of the moments in which I was like, yeah, I'm going to, like, go up and, like, maybe use the bathroom for a couple
2: minutes.
1: <laughs> see, that's when I really tuned in, the fantasy.
2: But see, why, <laughs> why did right, everyone... Right, was like, finally some substance. But why,
1: why <laughs> does everyone get in trouble for, like, oh, how dare you talk about something so trivial? I mean, come on. I mean, it's like, it's it, have been such an offensive moment. I mean, I, I can well, see why. Well, I mean,
2: just Chris... given, like, the reality of... Of like what we need to do. I mean, there was there was not any real time spent talking about budgets or I mean, like practical specific thing. I mean, the house.
1: But there never is. I mean, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I, mean, I don't mean to – look, I, it's just not – these debates are not set up for, like, serious exchanges of ideas, no. of views. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, think
3: that's right. And it's, I've always had this dream of um, doing an interview series with the, with the various candidates called Stupid Questions, where I just ask <laughs> them things like what their favorite color is. And right. I kinda of feel like this would it, it maybe this point in the race is a good is a good point to start
2: at. I think this race is just a long version of that <laughs> right
1: now. I mean you could say you could also known as the C N B C debate. I mean <laughs>
2: <laughs> Okay, but Ben Carson last night
1: mm-hmm.
2: who is actually that maybe the Teflon Don in this, no matter how bad the establishment media the media I, I don't know, most Americans think he's done in a debate. He just keeps going up. And I think this week was no exception.
1: He's Teflon because no one really goes after him. No one really knows what to make of him. I mean, he's such a gentle, has such a gentle bearing, despite what actually comes out of his mouth. (laughs) That no one really sees him as a threat, even though, you know, he does seem to be rising pretty steadily, certainly in Iowa. So... I mean, I, I just don't think he's engaged enough to to actually be vulnerable. Maybe that's been a good strategy for him.
3: Yeah. Wait, so have you seen a good explanation of what's actually happening with him in Iowa? So kind like, how I looking for this? What, what are the component pieces that have allowed this to happen? Or do we actually feel like we don't know? I don't know if either of you have seen, like, good reporting on, on what the hell is going on there. Well,
2: it's some, like, alchemical thing that's going on between— Trump and Carson, and I guess to some extent Ted Cruz. I mean, I personally think that the Carson phenomenon is explained by. A group of Americans who are sizable, at least in polling numbers, that are disenchanted and angry about the direction the country is going in, and/or feel like it's slipping away from them, and Donald Trump and Ben Carson, and to some extent Ted Cruz, are all fighting for that voter.
1: That voter, like there's mothers, well, there are more that than one profile
2: right? of voter,
1: perhaps. Now, but speaking of which, though, I mean, I think that that Carson has made a lot of great inroads with the African American Republican community in Iowa. That voter is really—I do mean voter. voter. It's a singular <laughs> voter has been flocking to him. Although, seriously, though, I mean, evangelicals uh, seem to love him. People who want an outsider but who are not ready to abide to Donald Trump sort of have a natural, I think, affinity to him. And
2: people like his his—he vo- is not combative, and yet the things com- he right. says yeah. are very combative. He is not
3: he, yeah, it is. He's an almost perfect foil for Trump
2: in yeah. that
3: way, because he's like both Trumply and completely not Trumply at all.
1: Trumply, that's a great word. Is that a word?
2: Now it is. I just made that
1: up. Trumply, can that's I, can very I, good.
2: Annie, I wonder what you thought of Carly Fiorina's performance because I felt like she was pretty. Her game has been pretty tight, to put it colloquially. <laughs> and mm-hmm. last night, I thought she was actually bad. I thought she came across as a little bit on talking points or a lot bit on talking points, and kept sort of deferring to this speechification language that she tends to use. Um and and wasn't really breaking through. I hate using that. I, I hate that phrase so much. No, but. I think that's right. But I think
3: it's interesting, right? So she actually, I believe, had the most minutes, like the most time of any of the single candidates. And that's because she kind of felt like she was filibustering in a way that she hasn't been before. And then on top of that, I just think that she seemed like she was just presenting herself, not as being presidential, not as being more commanding than the other people on the stage. She just felt kind of, it was almost a Romney-ish performance in some
2: sense. Ooh, the ultimate insult.
1: So she's going to win the nomination. Yeah,
2: so she's the candidate, (laughs) basically. (laughs) Um, Well, my friends, I think that is probably all the talking we need to do about the debate this week. There are so many other great, huge, momentous things happening in the world of presidential politics. We're going to take one more quick break to hear another friendly sponsor. And when we come back, we'll offer you the wisdom about what we would do if we were in charge.
0: From appointments with clients, meetings, errands, unless you're chained to your desk all day, then you're one of the 60 million Americans who drives for work. And you're either spending too much time tracking every mile, or you're guesstimating and end up losing money. And even then, your estimate could be as much as 20% less than what you could be claiming. Mile IQ is the solution you've been looking for. Mile IQ is the number one mileage tracker app and is trusted by more than a million Americans. MileIQ is the only mileage tracker that detects, logs, and calculates your drives for you automatically. MileIQ is easy to use and keeps all of your drives securely stored in the cloud. Try MileIQ for free today by texting America to 31996. That's America to 31996.
2: And now we bring ourselves to the closer, the clincher, the happy ending, if you will, for this podcast. <coughs> I mean that in the fairy book sense of the word. I don't know why you're chuckling, Mark. If I'm you not. were in charge, what would you do, Mr. Lebovich?
1: Because I'm in charge, I'm going to clean up these debates. I have a few suggestions for a future Republican debate. One, Rand Paul, you're out. He's done. Carly, also out. I think we need to eliminate two, maybe three candidates from the stage. I know that there are numeric formulas for this. But I'm just going to start with those two. If you guys want to add a third, feel free to chime in. I also want to eliminate opening and closing statements. I don't think they do anything. And actually, they don't really have opening statements anymore. Well,
2: they did, but CNBC chose not to air them, kind of. Oh, I guess they didn't air air the walk-ons.
1: And also, yeah, that was the other thing. I mean, what was with CNBC walk-ons? Like, all of a sudden, like, there was a new moderator and, like, who's this and who's that? But anyway, yeah. So Rand Paul and Carly Fiorina are done. And I'm sorry about that, guys.
2: If I were in charge... Briefly, I would stop with the polling metrics being the determinant for who's on stage, and I would start selecting five random candidates for each debate, and mix it up and get and mostly get Lindsey Graham in there.
3: Interesting. That's a that's a pretty good that's a good one. All right, so I don't have one today, but I know that Mark said that he has something else burning on his mind, so I kind of want to hear it.
1: Oh. No, not really. Actually, I want Lindsey Graham on there, too. I had a whole list, but no, they were all debate-focused, yeah, so I wouldn't—
2: My favorite, Lindsey Graham. Okay, so there we, we go. We... we should moderate a debate. We have consensus. We, we have consensus listeners to this podcast. Lindsey Graham should be invited to the Big Kids table. Totally. And there you have it.
1: And that's just not because we have extracted the promise from him that Podcast for America would be one of his first White House <laughs> interviews when he is in the Oval Office. He Exclusive. Said this exclusively on Podcast for America last week or maybe last week before. Time that. has no Either meaning. Way. It's
2: fluid for us here at Podcast for America.
1: Sort of is.
2: All right. That's it for Podcast for America. Thanks to our producer, Jocelyn Frank. Thanks to A.C. Valdez and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Please let us know what you think of this little show. You'll find us on Twitter at pod4america. Our email address is podcast4america at gmail.com. And please, please tell your friends about us, too. You can tell your enemies as well. You can subscribe to us in iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. It helps other people discover this great podcast. For Mark Leibovich and Annie Lowry, I'm Alex Wagner in New York. We'll talk to you next time, and thanks for listening.